Welcome to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Have you ever thought about what happens when you press the like button on a Facebook post? Or that cute little heart button on Instagram and TikTok? As it turns out, quite a lot is triggered in the digital cloud and on the ground. Author and journalist Guillaume Patron returns to Real Fiction and he will break this down. Joining me from Paris to discuss his latest book, The Dark Cloud, we get into the geography of that like button. With his investigative reporting, we challenge all kinds of narratives about dematerialization because it's all up in the cloud, right? Well, not really. Please stay, we will talk about this. Real Fiction is part of Real Fiction Forum. You can find that website online. And this episode, all episodes, wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much for being here. I'll be back in a moment with journalist Guillaume Pitron. My guest today is Guillaume Pitron. He is the author of The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs of the Digital World. Pitron is a journalist and documentary filmmaker. He was last here on Real Fiction to discuss his first book, The Rare Metals War, and I received a lot of comments about that conversation. This new book challenges us to think about the material impact of digital technology, even something as simple as pressing the like button when you're on social media platforms. He joins me from France to discuss his new book. Guillaume, welcome back to Real Fiction. Thank you, Laurie, for inviting me again. Guillaume, as I mentioned, the question I, I mentioned in a conversation with you before today, the question that I have been asked so much about from your last book is something you've said. Um, we have gained buying power, but we've lost buying knowledge. That was as it pertained to sort of green energy. And I feel like it's really relevant in this book as well, because you are challenging us to think a little differently about the material impact of digital technology. It's all up in the cloud, but it's its very real on Earth. Can you tell me how this book came to be? Sure. Um, in my former book, as you mentioned, The Rare Metals War, I was um, finishing the book with one fascinating figure, which you may remember, uh, saying that uh, for the next 30 years, the humankind will have to extract from the ground more metals and minerals and all the metals and mineral it has extracted for the last 70,000 years. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about dematerialization. I'm going to put my paycheck in the cloud. I will live a virtual life on the metaverse. All these words, cloud, metaverse, dematerialization, virtual, let us believe that I can turn my life from its physical reality towards kind of a digital realities that has no impact on the earth and that I will be able to, you know, keep getting richer, enjoying my life as a consumer without having any environmental impact. And I'm going to get the best of the two worlds. And I wanted to challenge this dematerialization stuff, especially because I had this figure in mind, which I just told you. The reality is that everyone knows that we're going to get more material in the future. 
that our daily lives will become even more materialistic. And so I wanted to challenge this dematerialization narrative. And I said to my editor, what if we perform an investigation, a two-year investigation all around the world, uh, questioning the paradox of dematerialization? And what if I follow the trail of a like? What if, like, if, what if I literally follow the trail of, of data around the world? Let's assume that I send an email or a like or whatever kind of other, you know, Facebook um, notification from my phone to someone else's phone who is sitting just two meters away from me in an office. Does this notification, does this data literally travel from my phone to such a person's phone two meters away from me? And actually that's not the case. The reality is that this like will travel all around the world, passing through all the strategic shock points of the internet infrastructure and travel for thousands of kilometers until it will arrive into someone else's phone. So the real distance is not two meters, it's 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 kilometers. So this like is a pretext to actually mm -hmm. tell about the material cost of turning virtual. Yes. And I remember, uh, we, we've talked about this before, you have you, you literally have traveled all over the world looking at this, um, including in the Washington, D.C. area. I believe you visited some data centers. The Northern Virginia has a, a massive complex of data centers that store data and um you know, it's part of the the cloud infrastructure. So in other words, when, when I press like, when I think I'm being a nice person and responding to somebody who posted something cute on the internet, it's actually triggering something in these big data centers, right? Definitely, yes. Uh, let me explain you first. Your Facebook account or your WhatsApp account, your Instagram account is not on your phone. It's in a data center. So physically speaking, literally speaking, your account is literally stored in a server, and this server is stored with many other servers in what we call a data center, a warehouse. And so, uh, between you and I, there are data centers, and in the world, there are three million data centers where all the data is getting stored. And I discovered, and that was a fascinating discovery, that due to its uh, prominency in the world geopolitics of uh, digital technologies. The United States um, have, um, there is a city south of DC, uh, which, is, uh, which is Ashburn in Northern Virginia, where 70% yes. of the world data is passing through every day, every single day. And because of what? Well, because the United States have been a leader in the development of the infrastructure and because many data centers from the US ecosystem have been gathering in this specific uh, city, which is sometimes nicknamed a cloud city. Why specifically Ashburn? It's because the taxes are less important than other cities, because electricity is quite cheap, because electricity is available, and this is needed for data centers, for running data centers. So when you go to Ashburn, you are into a cloud city with huge warehouses, where literally 70% again of the world data is getting uh, treated mm. and stored. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there is no cloud without electricity. The electricity is needed for running the cloud. Um, basically, most of the or not most, but 30 to 50% of the electricity 
is needed for refreshing the servers. You need to operate the servers in a cool environment. So you need air conditioning systems. So how do you get this electricity? Well, you get it by obviously asking to companies such as Dominion Energy in Northern Virginia to produce the electricity. And that brings a question, how much of electricity is being needed for running the cloud and where does the electricity come from? I did not realize 70% was based in Ashburn, Virginia. That's um, that's a, an astonishing figure. Let me pull back for just a moment and ask you about what you learned with regard to government policy. Um, you just mentioned that the United States has um, obviously put a lot of emphasis on the digital infrastructure. You also looked at the tiny Baltic country of Estonia, which is now called the most digital digitalized uh, country in the world. From a policy standpoint, what, what do you see happening in Europe, uh, maybe relative to the United States? Well, the United States is very much in advance and the European countries are obviously lagging behind. Um, I really believe that, in a way, European countries are a digital colony of the United States, which means mm. that uh, we uh, consume uh, U.S. Uh, web services. Uh, our data is getting stored somewhere else uh, from the than the European continent. That that is a big, big issue in terms of sovereignty. Uh, the thing with Estonia is when Estonia um, separated from the U USSR. In the 90s, there was a state to rebuild from scratch, and the motto was transparency. They wanted to rebuild a transparent state, contrary to what they had been experiencing in the in the decades before. And the idea of building um, um, a state based on digital technologies was very much to make digital technologies a support. Of a transparent state. Everything would be available to the public as long as you could get access to a screen. And so they entirely built their, their, the state services, which are available to every citizen, upon digital services, to such a point where today, uh, whatever you want to do when you're um, a citizen from Estonia, maybe besides uh, getting married, where you have to be physically present in front of the mayor. But besides of that, you can do anything online. And even when you die, you have an e-death service. So the state takes care of your death and makes sure that everything mm. can be treated online, the data being uh, uh, processed and other services, administrative services being processed online, uh, so that that makes everything more easy to everyone on their daily basis but the very idea is is to be transparent so i've been there i've been in estonia um, i've been in, you know speaking to people who run this service and it seems like it's a wonderful world because you know it has no impact everything in the cloud uh, by the way there's a strong ecological argument you don't need the tons of paper that you need to print every day and bring such a form or such a form to such an administration. So that seems so fluid, that seems so easy to live with. But never do the people speak about the infrastructure behind. Because if you want to make that service available to everyone on their phone, you need to have uh, 4G antennas, you need to have data centers, you need to have wires and cables. 
you need to have electricity network to run all that stuff. And by the way, you need some mines at some point in order to produce the metals that will make all these servers possible and the phones possible. And this question was like a taboo. No one would talk about it. It's as if it just didn't exist. And I felt like there was a huge discrepancy between the knowledge that people have about the material impact of that and the reality that this is a very, very materiality, material impactful uh, technology. And that discrepancy is true everywhere. It's not only in Estonia, but everywhere in my country in France, but also in the United States. We have just no idea about how material intensive this virtual world is. And you said something really important a minute ago about the sovereignty of the the global infrastructure. So I'd like to ask you about a fascinating chapter in the book. Um, it's actually chapter nine. It's titled 20,000 Tentacles Under the Sea. And you describe the internet as a gigantic amphibious network. Can you tell me something about how you reported on the cables who oversees the the bureaucracy um, and who 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 owns these cables? Tell me mm-hmm. what you learned. First, it might seem very counterintuitive to our readers, but when you send a like on a social network, this like goes through a submarine fiber optic cable. Forget about satellites. The real thing is, ninety nine percent of all the data that we consume and produce and share goes through the oceans in these uh, cables. There are today 500 submarine fiber optic cables uh, laid, lying everywhere across the globe. As much as we can, as much as the industry can, these cables are being uh, laid into the oceans and not on the emerged uh, uh, territories because it's less costly to just lay them on the depths of the seas. And if we um, make the total kilometers or miles of all these 500 cables, it amounts to a total length of 1.2 million kilometers, which is 30 times the circumference of the Earth. And now someone comes and say, says, oh, I'm going to uh, you know, provide you with a wireless internet service. <laughs> but it's not wireless at all. We have never been as wired as we are today because Mm. whatever you do, you need such cables. So basically, a cable is a very simple piece of of wire, very tiny, very discreet, that goes from one country to one another through the seas, or that goes from the United States to France, or from uh, the United States to Latin American countries through the sea. These cables uh, are... Obviously, if you want to lay a cable, you have first to ask the administration of the country where they have their exclusive economic zone. So if you want to you know, link France to the United States, you need to have the approval from the French administration and from the U.S. administration. Usually, it's easy to get such an administration because countries want to get connected with each other more and more. And then, uh, who's going to you know, deploy the cable? Who's going to pay for the cable? Who's going to manufacture the cable? And here we are more and more, we have more and more uh, private companies. And it's very true with the Northern Atlantic Oceans, with cables going from Europe to the United States. Most of the cables today, today is a wide majority of them, belongs to the FANG. They belong to uh, Facebook, Amazon, Google. 
Um, and that brings the question of the sovereignty over these cables. Mm -hmm. Private groups uh, want to get the content, um, but also they want to get the envelope. They want to be the masters of both. They want to own the data and they want to own the infrastructure thanks to which, which the data can flow. That may bring at some point some questions of sovereignty or they may make people some kind of worried about it. I might not worry too much about it because I don't see Google or Facebook having any interest in just shutting off a cable because that may, you know, spark lots of conflicts and tensions with states. But in a way, it's it's worth asking the question, we the French or to, to and at some point for the uh, US uh, administration, is it um, worth letting private companies Today, it's U.S. companies, Western companies, maybe two more Chinese companies, taking such an advantage uh, over the uh, cables of the Internet infrastructure. So, in other words, there's a lot of power concentrated in the hands of oh, yeah. a few companies. Definitely, um, yes. He, there is a scene in the book, a passage in the book, where you are standing at the edge of the sea, um, kind of watching... Um, boats, ships do some of this work. Can you give us a sense of what uh, what you did to report this book? I think the listeners of this particular program are really kind of fascinated by how journalists um, kind of map out their process for putting together a large-scale investigation. Yeah, Laurie. Uh, first, I'm a reporter, and at la at, I, I try as much as I can to be a direct witness of what I'm talking about. And this book, Dark Cloud, is um, um, an investigation around the world, which took me a while, and which took me uh, in 10 different countries. And I wanted to see internet. I wanted to touch internet. I wanted to smell internet. I wanted to taste internet. I wanted to listen to internet. And all the things you can do it. When you're in the cloud, you listen to internet. It's like a beehive being in the cloud. Mm -hmm. But you can taste internet. When the cable goes out of the sea, when it's being recycled, uh, some people take them out of the sea. And I saw actually a ship coming uh, from northern Atlantic Ocean arriving in the port of Porto in Portugal. And the cable being just, you know, uh, uh, cut into pieces on the on the on the on the on, on the port on the, on the harbor and i would put my hand on the cable and, and put my hand on my tongue and feel like, feel like oh my goodness internet is not sweet internet is salty because it's just getting out of the sea so all this needs uh, on the field travel it needs direct experience and obviously one of these experiences watching a cable being installed along the french shores or watching uh, or, or tasting a cable on the port of Porto in Portugal and tasting the cable and tasting internet was a fascinating experience. But I had also other experiences. Uh, I went to the Appalachians uh, close to DC in order to understand how the mining activities, the mining of coal, such a coal is being necessary for producing electricity and such a coal-made electricity may be used for data centers in Virginia. So our selfies are running out of coal, thanks to electricity made of coal. That was also a fascinating report. And probably one of the other reports which was fascinating to me was being in the, the Arctic Circle, northern parts of Europe, because this is where uh, Facebook, today Meta, 
has been installing some of these data centers for the European consumers. And because mm -hmm. they want to put the data centers closer to the consumers in Europe, and because they want to use less electricity, uh, and how do you use less electricity? Well, basically, you install a data center in an environment which is naturally cold. And I traveled in the Appalachians because there is a coal mining industry and such a coal is necessary for producing electricity. And part of this electricity uh, may be precisely needed for the data centers. So that was also a fascinating report. And one of the other fascinating reports that I've been doing was traveling in the Arctic Circle, northern parts of Europe, in Lapland, because this is where the company Facebook, today Meta, has been installing a couple of years ago some data centers for European consumers. And because Meta wants to use less electricity for refreshing the data centers and having a lesser impact on the environment, basically they moved the cloud in the freshest part of the in the coldest part of the world, where there is free cooling, where there is a blizzard. Mm. And um, that is a way to, uh, you know, um, consume less electricity and to have a lesser impact on the environment. And that's fascinating to feel like my WhatsApp account is literally in northern Laplands under meters of snow <laughs> in Sweden. And that was a fascinating report to perform. Yeah, I, I think very few people would know that fact and I, I, think I wouldn't know that before i read that news <laughs> that was fascinating yeah. i wouldn't figure it out that whatever i do actually leaves a trace 100 kilometers south of, of the arctic circle in a small city called luleo I, I could never believe that so i went there and, and i took a train and i traveled there and i went to see the data center from the outside and there was a guard like a Facebook guy, he was he was he was hired by Facebook. He was a security guard in front of the data center, and he said, "But what are you doing here?" And I said, "But I came to visit my friends because they're all inside this data center. <laughs> I have 625 friends on, on Facebook, and they are all right here, physically speaking, in a server, and I'm there myself." And I found it was kind of funny to feel like, you know, I have double physical reality where I stand right now but where I leave every trace of my life when I'm on Facebook or WhatsApp a double physical reality that's uh, uh wow I have to think about that one for a moment uh when when you were standing there did the was the guard surprised that you knew about the data center and had the audacity to show up and <laughs> um, and look at it. I mean, what what was what was the guard's reaction? Well, I, I admit you were not permitted to go in. I didn't ask for the permission to go in because I knew in advance that I would never get a chance to get in. The only few persons who could get in are authorized journalists when there's a very well organized event or Mark Zuckerberg. So to be very honest, I didn't even take the chance to try. The guard was quite unhappy because he didn't have the right to 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 make me leave. I was in a public space and I was on the road, so there's nothing you could do, but I had cars turning around me and there was kind of a, it was a way for, to let me understand that I was not, uh, I was persona non grata. That's, uh, I think yeah. that was what they were trying to make me understand. So I probably stayed for a couple of minutes, took some pictures and that's it. But Facebook doesn't want to be, I mean, it's not, it's public information that Facebook is in Sweden, but they want to remain discreet. They want to, you know, they want to be seen everywhere on the screens, 
you see the Facebook logo everywhere when you are surfing on the web, but when it comes to the, to the, to the physical world, they don't want to be seen anywhere. They, they want to let you believe that they just don't exist in the real world, in the physical world. And data centers of Facebook in Sweden, legally speaking, the legal documents doesn't even hold the name of data center or of Facebook. It holds the name of a branch of Facebook whose name I forgot. They do everything they can to become boring, to make themselves uh, just unknown and forgotten because there's just no interest to speak about them. And in a way, that's a way to be invisibilized, to just, you know, having no one speaking about your presence so that no one will speak about any impact you may have on the environment. And that's a strategy which has been analyzed by some researchers in Sweden. How do you become so invisibilized that you become physically untouchable and because you're physically not seen and untouchable, no one will criticize you? Let me remind listeners, my guest today is Guillaume Pitron. He's the author of a book called The Dark Cloud, The Hidden Costs of the Digital World. And I don't think we can state enough the importance of um, journalists doing big investigations, long-term investigations that puts themselves in um, physical and digital, you know, potential harm. Um, when I looked at the back of your book, Guillaume, I saw a kind of description of you as a activist journalist. But I wanted to ask you about how how you feel about that kind of label because being an activist journalist doesn't do you have the impression that kind of opens you up for risk as you're taking on these investigations tell me how you navigate that sure i'll be very honest with you laurie i had a discussion with the editor when he wrote that because i said to his editor i'm not an activist and you can't write that because um, i don't think that i can be a journalist and an activist at the same time i feel like it's a paradox an activist stands for a cause and he has a, you know, a specific view on some things. And as a journalist, I'm supposed to come with a, with a, with a neutral view. And that's why I, I, I challenge these two words coming along. I am a journalist. I can be called an investigative journalist. But once again, I don't want to be seen as an activist, which I'm not. I don't uh, do... You know, I, I, I'm not uh, participating in any NGO uh, activities. I uh, am not in a political party. I wouldn't say for which party I'm voting. I think it's important that journalists show how neutral they can remain and sticking out of any NGO activity, even if I do respect very much activists, by the way. That doesn't mean that I'm not taking risks. And uh, wherever I go, uh, information is not easy to find. And uh, I've been in China for this book. I've been in the graphite mines of northern China, where no Chinese authority would like to let you in. I didn't ask for the authorization to get into the mines and to uh, bring back some images and information uh, from the mines and to fly drones from uh, over the uh, above the mines and that put me in risky situations i probably could have been arrested which actually i was arrested but not for such a long time they didn't put me in jail but i could flying a drone over graphite mines could have put me in huge troubles uh, which 
fortunately enough, didn't happen. But that is the kind of risk you have to take if you want to be a direct witness of things. People might discuss anything about what you write. They might say, oh, you're talking about this report uh, which brings such a figure, but I have another report mentioning other figures. But when it comes to uh, you, know, you being a direct witness of the of, of what internet looks like, of what the infrastructure looks like, there's no discussion at all because you've been there. You, you, you just, you know, relate what you've seen, what you've smelt, what you've listened to, and nobody can discuss that. So in a way, I take risks being on the field, but back to my home country, doing a conference or writing something and speaking to the media, having taken that risk before actually is an excellent life insurance when I'm back in my country and when I can argue about how material the virtual world is. I'm holding the book now and um, every chapter has, oh my goodness, more than 70, 80 um, references to um, your research. There are graphs and wonderful data visualization to back up everything that you have reported on. So Guillaume Pichon, if I may ask you um, like maybe a final question. As you look at the digital world, what do you find is something that's actually practical and actionable? Sure. It's not only a book about what goes wrong. Uh, it's also a book about what can we do uh, about that. One very, very, I would say, simple action to do, and that could start just right now, as you stop listening to this phone, as you stop listening to this podcast is that holding your phone and making you the promise that you're going to keep it twice as long as the time you thought you would keep it. Usually we keep a phone for 18 months and then we throw it away because the battery is down or because the screen is down, is broken. Well, uh, if you keep that phone twice as long, let's say three years, four years, well, that makes a world of a difference because the manu manufacturing of a, of a phone or of a tablet or a computer one of these 34 billion devices that are right now working on Earth accounts for most of the digital pollution. It's first and foremost a pollution to manufacture the metals, to process the metals, and to manufacture the devices, the electronic devices. So if I keep my phone twice as long, well, basically I divide per two this pollution, which is the most important pollution of the digital world. So that makes a world of a difference. Mm. So you have to understand, and we have to understand what plant obsolescence strategy is. Companies want to ch you to change your phone as much as you can. So they have an interest in gluing the battery to the phone. And if the battery goes down, just, you, you just change the, old, the entire device. But if you, change, if you choose a phone, which actually uh, was battery is not glued, and no, there are information about that. And if you go to the repair shop and, and change the battery, well, it can last for, for, for a longer time. So I would, I would just give this simple example that is really easy to apply in your everyday life. I really want to thank you for coming back to Real Fiction today. Appreciate you being here. Always a pleasure to speak to the uh, U.S. audience, U.S. listeners, U.S. readers. It's good to be with you on the show. You've been listening to Real Fiction Podcast. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction is part of Real Fiction Forum. You can find that website online 
and this episode and all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.